0: Earlier this morning, Megan texted me saying that their family wasn't going to be here this morning, and I was a little bit sad. Like, I'm happy that they're doing like cool Mother's Day stuff as a family, but there's some really fun words in the first few verses of Ruth chapter one that I was really, I I wasn't going to warn her. I was just going to have her go for it. So, you know, we, we might look at this same passage next week just to see how she does with no warning because I think that would be a whole lot of fun. But this morning we are starting a, a brand new sermon series. We are going through the book of Ruth, and we're going to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through this book. It's a short book. It's a fascinating book. It's only going to take us uh, four weeks to go through the entire thing. Um, but it's it's absolutely a wonderful and inspired part of the Old Testament. But more than not, more than that. In addition to that, and I promise. Let me rephrase, not more than that. In addition to that, it is just an incredible piece of literature. My favorite factoid, or I don't know if it's a factoid or an urban legend or or whatever it is, um, but when um, Thomas Jefferson was in Paris, he was in a society of people that just thought they were super, super smart and they were kind of full of themselves. And so he was going to this society because he was also super smart and probably a little bit full of himself. Um, I don't know much about Thomas Jefferson aside from what I've seen in Hamilton, but I'm assuming that that was very close to his actual persona. And so he went to this society in Paris, full of all these intellectual elites, and they declared that they had no need for the scripture. They had no need for religion. They were too advanced of a society to have any need for that. And one of the things that they would do in this muckety-muck first-class society is they would bring in great pieces of literature and read them and discuss them together. And so Jefferson, because he was a prankster, um, he volunteered to read a short story and he read this society of these people that thought they were so smart and did not have any need for religion, the story of Ruth verbatim out of his Bible minus he changed the names because he thought maybe one of them might have been to Sunday school at one point. And they bloviated for hours and hours on how it was the most brilliant short story ever written. And they thanked him so much for this wonderful piece of literature. And then he laughed at them and told them where it came from. Because Ruth is just, it's a wonderful addition to our Old Testament, but it's also this great piece of literature. Every word is chosen with care. It's got everything you could possibly want in a story. It's got dramedy. Dramedy? (laughs) Isn't that like what TBS says they have? Uh, uh, It's got drama. It's got comedy. It's got tragedy. Uh, I can't read. Drama, tragedy. My notes, I need to raise the font size apparently. But it's got pain. It's got redemption. It's got loyalty. It's got romance. It is a beautiful story but it's more than a love story. It is a story within a story at the very beginning of the book. One of the the notes in the study Bible that I was using this week says the theological message of the book of Ruth may be summarized as follows. God cares for needy people like Naomi and Ruth. He is their ally in a chaotic world. That is the story of Ruth. The story of Ruth is that in a world that is full of chaos, We have a God who is an ally. One caveat, um, Ruth was written to be read in a single setting, um, all four chapters. And since you probably don't want to listen to me preach for two hours and I only prepared chapters one sermon, um, we're not going to do the whole thing in one setting. So I'm going to encourage you to um, take some time over the next few weeks, dive in to this, but also make sure that you're here because if you miss one of the chapters It's going to give you an incomplete picture of Ruth. And then one resource I would like to recommend, this is uh, Carolyn James. It's called The Gospel of Ruth, and it is absolutely brilliant. I think it's like eight bucks on Amazon right now. I promise you want it. It is the best piece on Ruth that I've ever read, and I think you should pick it up. So I'm going to pray, and then we are going to dive into Ruth chapter one and begin to see how God cares for needy people. Lord, would you bless us now as we look at your word? God, I pray that you would cause us to use this text as a mirror, like James tells us to in his epistle. God, that we would use your word to show us things that we need to change and show us things that we need to alter about ourselves. But also, God, I pray that as we read this text, as we look at this fairly familiar account that you would show us things about yourself that we have not known before. God, I pray that you would use your word to shape us and mold us into the disciples that you have called us to be, that we would be more loving, more gracious, more peaceful, more patient as a result of spending time in your word. God bless us now. And it's in Jesus name. We pray. Amen. As I was uh, reading and reading and studying this week, getting ready for this series, one thing kept jumping out at me. Uh, before Easter, we spent about two months going through the life of Samuel. We started in 1 Samuel, and we just, we looked at all these different accounts from Samuel's life. And Jewish tradition actually tells us that Samuel wrote the book of Ruth. We don't know if that's actually true. That's not like inspired anywhere. That's just what tradition has has taught for thousands of years. Um, so we, we can say it's a likelihood, but we don't know for sure. But either way, um, this account would have taken places a few generations before Samuel was born. But Samuel begins with the story of a mother who is praying. Samuel begins with the story of a mother who is not willing or ready to give up. Things are not going for her the way that they hoped that she hoped they would be. In fact, she's not even a mother yet. And at this point, she refuses to stop trusting God, even when the evidence is stacked up that it's not going to go her way. In just a few minutes, we're going to see how Ruth starts with a mother who has not had things go her way. I don't think that it is coincidence that God is orchestrating this theme in our studies this year. I promise it is not because um, I've planned, I can assure you of that. I'm not that organized, but it's just compelling to me that we keep coming back to this theme in our church that God can and does do amazing things when people keep the faith, even though the circumstances around them should suggest that maybe they shouldn't. Even when people take a look around and they realize that things are not as they should be, God can and does do amazing things when people, and in both of these situations, when moms refuse to give up. Now, in Naomi's case, she was fighting hand over fist that she wasn't going to give up. Naomi took some encouragement, but either way, we have these two wonderful Old Testament accounts that say God is not done, even though it looks like things are bad. The reason that I love Ruth so much isn't because of Ruth, it's it's named after her, but it's really the story of Naomi. She experiences so many different emotions and disappointments, and yet she is ready and willing to make the sacrifices necessary for her family. Her faith might waver a little bit, especially at the end of chapter one, but what is not wavering is the love that she has for the people that God has her in a relationship with she was ready and willing to make the sacrifices that were necessary for her family only to be disappointed again and again and again. And despite everything that she goes through, God is not through with her yet. Even when she is ready to just be done, God says, I'm not done with you. So we are going to look at uh, chapter one, verse one, because that's how a book starts of the book of Ruth. It starts like this in the days when the judges ruled there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephiathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Like I said, it would have been really fun to not warn Megan and just give her those names. Hey, have fun. This gives us a little bit of a historical timeline. This is in the days of Judges. So this is between when the kings were established and were ruling Israel and when Joshua was leading the people as they were conquering the land. So the nation had been established, but there was no centralized government. We're told in the book of Judges multiple times, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So this is happening during that time. And we're introduced to a few characters, and that's kind of typical with, uh, in Old Testament narrative. We're given characters and these characters have very, very poignant names. Elimelech's name literally means my God is king. Wouldn't it be easier if his name was just my God is king? So we wouldn't have to say Elimelech time and time again. Um, Naomi's name means pleasant or sweetness. What a happy couple they must have been. My God is king, falls in love with and marries sweetness. That's the kind of couple you want to volunteer in your children's ministry, right? That's the kind of couple that you want to have in your small group. That's the kind of couple that could change the world. A boy who has made God the king of his life. He marries the sweetest, the most pleasant girl in town. And we know from later on in the book that they were of some means because Elimelech owned a valuable piece of property. Can you imagine what they hoped and dreamed for their future? Can you imagine what they hoped and dreamed to accomplish together? when these two wonderful, beautiful people get married, they they fall in love and then they start having kids. And you would expect for those kids to be wonderful and beautiful too, but that is not how their story turns out. Malon and Killian's names literally mean unhealthy and sickly. Hey, would you like to meet my sons? Unhealthy and pale. That's a, that is a rough go if you are a kid, you know, that's yikes. But Naomi had hoped and planned for one type of future for her family, and from the moment her kids were born, it was apparent that that was not the kind of future that she was going to get. She had planned for strapping and strong boys, and what she got was sick and weak. I'm sure that she had planned on raising them around their families in a loving, supportive community, but then more disappointment happens. Famine comes to the land, maybe because of the health of the boys and maybe because there was better financial opportunities elsewhere Elimelech says hey fam pack up we are moving to moab and so they did they packed up and they moved to moab this is not a lateral move this is not a move from you know tampa to orlando this is a move out of god's will out of god's provision and out of god's protection God had chosen to bless the nation of Israel specifically and particularly when they were in the land that he had given them. And about a hundred years after these events, when David, who was Ruth's great, 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 or great, great grandson is writing the Psalms. He is describing Moab. And this is the kind of land that Elimelech chooses to take his family to. This is what David says in Psalm 108 verse nine, Moab is my wash basin. That is a very kind translation. Think of another porcelain part of the restroom that is um, not where you wash your hands is what David is saying of Moab. Another translation says, um, Moab is my sludge bucket. I'll let you get your own mental picture of how God and how God's people really felt about Moab, but it was not good. And so when Elimelech says, hey, family, we are moving to Moab, it is a, ooh, really? Why why would you do that? Now, these next verses uh, that we're about to, to read, they introduce a tragedy into the heart of the story. And this is a literary technique that is used, well, for millennia. But the author at the very beginning of this story, probably Samuel, he is going out of his way to say, Th- I want you to realize that there is tension from the very beginning Of this account. All these words are chosen carefully. We don't get any details about what went on. We are just told that something tragic takes place. The story gets real heavy, real hard, real fast. Verse 3 says Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpha and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Heartbreak one, Elimelech dies. All of Naomi's plans of growing old with him, of sharing life, of having grandkids, of going into the sunset, years gone. Out the window, no longer an option. Heartbreak number two, both of her sons married Moabite women. We already kind of covered what the nation of Israel thought of Moab. And so when her sons went out of their way to marry Moabite women, they were essentially saying, we are breaking off from our people. We are no longer going to identify spiritually, ethnically, religiously with our family of origin. When Moses was delivering the law to the nation of Israel, there's a section in there that basically says it will be multiple generations. If you have a child with a Moabite, It will be generation after generation after generation after generation. Maybe your great, 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 great grandson will be allowed to worship in the temple, but not before that. Mm -mm. If you intermarry with these people, they are so wicked that it is going to be generations before your family is welcomed back into the collective people of Israel. The Moabites were known for, for human sacrifice and all kinds of perverse wickedness. And so God's people were told just steer clear of them. And when Naomi's sons each marry a woman from these people, it was a slap in the face to everything their family stood for. That's heartbreak number two for Naomi. And then Naomi's sons both die. Both of them. The heartbreak of her son's left of her son's dying is the final straw for her. At this point, it's been a decade that they have lived in this weird and foreign place. And she is just over it. She's a shell of herself. And she says, I can't stay here anymore. Verse six tells us when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of the people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Naomi hears a report that the famine has lifted in Bethlehem after at least a decade. And so she says, it is time to go. God has shown up. God has been gracious. God is blessing his people again. And so in her heart, she says, it is time for me to go home. I know I left with this family unit intact and everything looked peachy and hunky-dory and that's not who I am anymore, but it's time for me to go back to where God is blessing. Listen to what Naomi says to her daughter's in law here in this passage. Keep on. This is the first dialogue we get in the book. And that is spectacular because dialogue makes up 53% of the book of Ruth. Most of the book is just conversations that people are having. And yet no one has said a word here until we get to verse eight. So pay close attention to the words that are used because this profound conversation is about to take place. But here we have Naomi who is with her daughters-in-law. They have dealt collectively with death. They have left, they have dealt with childlessness because there's no grandkids to speak of here in this situation. Hopelessness has sunk in and yet no one has said a word until we get to verse eight. And then we have this. Then Naomi said to her do- to her two daughters-in-law, go back each of you to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness of you as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. This is a huge testament to the kind of person Naomi must have been. Because remember, the Moabites know what the Israelites thought of them. And they're saying, no, no, sign us up. We want to go to be around those people that think that of us because we want to be with you. This isn't just a goodbye, see you later. This is a group of women who have been through horrible things together. Ruth and Orpha have left their own people and married Israelite men, just as much as uh, Naomi's sons had left their people to marry them. They are now set apart from the Moabites. They have abandoned their national identity. Both of them have lived for years, hoping for and wanting children, only to now see their husbands die And these three women have lived, struggled, cried, and mourned together for years. And Naomi turns to bless them and free them from the responsibility that they felt to her and say, look, you don't owe me anything. You don't need to stay with me. You deserve better. Go home. Go back to your family. Remember, this is a society where a dowry had been paid. It was Naomi's responsibility to take care of these women. And it was these women's responsibility to take care of Naomi. And Naomi is saying to them, you can do better than to spend your remaining years with me waiting for me to die. It is time for you to go on and start a new life. And they love her so much that they would not start over without her. But she eventually convinces one of them. Naomi said to them, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have sons anymore who can become your husbands? Because again, in that society, those women belong to Naomi and her family. The only people that they are allowed to marry are family members of Naomi, which will come into play in a big way here in a couple of chapters. But Naomi is saying, Look around. I'm not about to remarry. Are you going to, if I got married tomorrow and was able to have children right away, um, do you want to wait? 20, 25 years until one of them can marry you? No, go about your life, go. So she says to them, return home. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you. Remember, Naomi's name means sweetness, and we have bitterness as a main theme in this book. She says, "It is more bitter people call me sweet, but now I am bitter. My life is more bitter than it is sweet." She says it is more bitter for me than it is for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. This at this they wept aloud, then Orpha kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Ruth remained and said, I'm going to stay. Even though I know what I've signed up for, even though I know what staying with you means, I'm going to stay. Naomi convinces Orpha and verse 15 says that Ruth clung to her. This idea of clinging, this word is the same word that is used um, back in Genesis. When Adam looks at Eve for the very first time and says, hey, hey, God, I get it. I get your point now of of all of this. And Adam says, for this purpose, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. That is the same word that we have here for Ruth cleaving on to Naomi. She is not letting go. She is committing. Naomi says, God has forgotten her. Naomi says, hey, I am forgotten. I am abandoned in verse 13. Even though she has Ruth as her protector, she feels forgotten. She feels abandoned because sometimes in the midst of tragedy, we miss the provision that God has given us in the form of the people who have loved us and stuck by us. These women are weeping, they are distraught. And Naomi says, Please just go. It will be better for you if you go. When Orpha leaves, She says, look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. And when Naomi says this, the stage is now set for some of the most legendary words, like one of the most powerful commitments that we find anywhere in the Bible. About once a year, um, I, I do a wedding and a couple will be, you know, exchanging their own vows and someone will pull out this passage and include it in their vows. And I'm like, pastor, like they're going to watch this video for the rest of their lives. And I'm always like, this is, this is not like a romantic vow that you're making. This is like something that someone says to their mother-in-law who they love very much. Now, I love my mother-in-law very, very much. I have never made a vow to her. That would, uh, that's not the kind of relationship that we have. And yet, when Ruth looks at Naomi, she says, this is how serious I am. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn my back on you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Chris Tomlin's like, that's a good idea. I'm going to steal that one. Um, Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized... Ruth was determined to go with her. She stopped urging her. It is difficult to put this declaration in perspective for us. But you need to remember that Ruth was a Moabite. It would mean that she would not only be seen as a foreigner if she went with Naomi, but she would be seen as a potential enemy as she went with Naomi. She would not just be thought of as different, but should be thought of as less than and almost a barbarian for the rest of her life. And in a single moment, Ruth says, no, no, no. I'm not going to be a Moabite anymore. I'm going to be what you are. In one split decision, Ruth forsakes her homeland. She forsakes her people. She forgets her nation's gods, their religion. She forsakes her safety, her future her destiny, everything just to go with Naomi. And this was not just for life. When she says this, this was an intimate connection uh, there, in the, in the near East, there was an intimate connection um, that people assumed between where you were buried and where you spent your afterlife. So when Ruth says, "Uh, uh-uh, I'm not going to be buried among my people, I'm going to be buried among your people under your God That was the ultimate commitment that could have been made. Not just to Naomi, but to Naomi's God. Ruth's words are so powerful here that Naomi says, do you know what? Fine, you can come with me. And so the two women return to Bethlehem where Naomi had left a decade before as a very, very different person. The chapter ends like this. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. So there's the contrast again between sweet and bitter, between Naomi and Mara. Those are the, the, Mara literally means, means bitter, Naomi meaning sweet. So she says, don't call me sweet, call me bitter. Don't call me full, call me empty. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvesting was beginning. The people that had known her her entire life looked at her and said, can that really be her? Is that the same person that we went to high school with? Is that the same person that used to be the life of the party? Is that the same person that used to be so sweet, so full of life? She looks like a shell of herself. Melissa used to have an uncle. Um, he, I, he's still around. He's just not her uncle anymore because that's how marriage and divorce works. But um, he wasn't around all that much. When we got married at the end of 2005, he was there in a big part of that. And then we didn't see him for a while. Um, the spring of 2007, we moved to Texas for me to go to seminary. And so that Christmas, um, when we came back, it had been about two years Since we saw him, and I know you're going to be shocked by this, but I looked a little bit different in 2007 than I did in 2005. A few years of this had happened. A little bit of this had happened. Um, Also, we got married in 2005, and I thought it was a really good idea to have very natural-looking blonde hair for the wedding because frosted tips, right? It was a thing. Yeah. Um, And so in 2007, when we saw him for the first time in a few years, my hair was shaggy and, and darker. There was certainly a little bit more around my midsection. And he came up to me and introduced himself. And I was like, Mick, I've known you for five years. And he rubbed my belly and says, oh, you just don't look like the same person anymore. That's not a feeling that I cherish. That is not a memory that I am fond of. When I think of him, I don't think, oh, what a nice guy. Because someone telling you that you don't resemble yourself anymore is typically not a compliment. And these women who have known Naomi her entire life say, can this be her? This, no, this is not that person we used to know. This is a different person. Naomi no longer looked like Naomi. She no longer acted like Naomi. And then she shows up and says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Naomi was a happy person, a full person. Look at me. I have nothing. How do you think Ruth felt standing next to her as she's declaring to the whole town? I have nothing and no one. And Ruth's like, like three verses ago, I just made this beautiful pledge to you. And now you're telling everybody that you have nothing and no one. If Ruth's virtue is faith. Naomi's virtue is honesty. What I love about Naomi is that she runs to God's people and she tells them, here is where I'm at. This is her public declaration and she is inviting others into her story. And she says, here's where I'm at. I left sweet and full and I came back bitter and empty. She had been through so much that she didn't even want to use her name anymore. She was bitter, and yet God was not done with her. None of Naomi's plans had worked out, but God's plan for Naomi was just getting started. Notice the chapter ends by saying, Ruth the Moabite had returned from the country of Moab. The author didn't have to put it in there, but twice he goes out of his way, to emphasize that this is a Moabite woman who finds herself in the middle of a strange land for what could only become a, a very surprising purpose. And then he says, the barley harvest is beginning. Something is about to happen. A change is about to take place in the midst of this brokenness, in the midst of this emptiness, there is this little spark of hope. The famine is gone. God's providential hand of kindness and blessing had arrived and a whole new season is happening in Bethlehem. And maybe it's a whole new season in the life of Naomi and Ruth. It's a beautiful story. And this is chapter one. So again, you want to be here for the next several. But one thing I can't help to notice when I look at this chapter, and it's not written in the text. This is just me pulling this out so it might be wrong but it's something that seems glaring to me Naomi experienced most of her heartbreak and disappointment when she was in Moab when she left for Moab she was full and sweet but when she came back she was empty and bitter and once she was back home where she was supposed to be that's when God began to show up we get this hint of hope once she was where she was supposed to be. Hope that maybe she'll begin to experience the fullness and the sweetness that she had desired for so long. This is one of the themes we see all throughout scripture. The entire human race goes away from God and this great plan of salvation is to bring them back to where they are supposed to be. It's what we see here in Ruth chapter one, but we see it throughout scripture. Abraham goes to Egypt and things do not go the way he wanted them to go while he was in Egypt. And then he comes back. Jacob flees to Aram and things do not go well. But then he comes back to where God wanted him to be. The people of Jerusalem go into Babylon and then they come back. In the New Testament, the prodigal son goes away from his father's house and things go horribly. But then he comes back. And at the center of all of these stories is this idea of redemption. This idea That Jesus, the good news, calls us back home. Whoever we are, however far we've gone, we are called back home. And we are called in a newer and infinitely greater gospel than what Naomi heard. To come home. Come home to the God who made you and loves you and is the only one who can fill your emptiness And meet your deepest need. Come back empty. Come back with only small expectations. If that's all you have come back bitter, if you must, but come back. Naomi had been gone 10 years. Others have been gone longer. And yet the call is still there to come back. We were made for God and we were made to be surrounded by God's people. Our place of wholeness begins when we realize that God wants us to be in relationship with him and surrounded by his people. Naomi thought that she had been forgotten. She thought that the emptiness and the bitterness would define the rest of her life, but God was just getting started, but she had to come home. Next week, we're going to continue this. I would urge you to please Read ahead. You want to be here as we look at the rest of the story or begin to look at the rest of the story next week. But it's a beautiful picture that no matter how far or how long we have wandered, no matter how far or how long we have drifted, there is an invitation to come home. And when we come home, when we are reconciled to God, healing begins. And hope begins. Would you pray with me? God, you are good and you are faithful. And your goodness and your faithfulness doesn't always look like things going our way. And your goodness and your faithfulness don't always look like things happening when, why, or how we think they should. Sometimes your goodness and your faithfulness are designed to bring us back home. God, I pray that this morning we would be reminded that even when things look bleak, you are not finished working. God, I pray that we would trust you and that we would be willing to be honest with God's people and say, here's where I'm at. Here's what I'm experiencing. And God, I pray that we would be willing to return to the place that you have for us, even when we've wandered. God, bless us now. Then it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.